Section 22 of Chapters on Evolution by Andrew Wilson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 The Evidence from Missing Links, Part 3. Such were the details of Archaeopteryx structure at hand to the last three years or so. In 1879, Professor Carl Vogt made a communication concerning a fresh specimen of this ancient bird, found in the same deposits which afforded the previous specimen. The new specimen was singularly complete, and its wings were unfolded as if death and fossilization had overtaken it in the act of flight. Its examination revealed certain startling features, which only served to confirm in an unmistakable manner the thoroughly intermediate nature of this animal. Its upper jaw bore two small conical teeth. The breastbone is reduced to zero, and whilst its arm bones present no features peculiar to reptiles or to birds, its hand can be compared neither to that of a bird nor to that of a pterodactyl, but to that of a three-toed lizard. If the feathers had not been preserved, says Vogt, no one would have ever suspected that from the examination of the skeleton alone of Archaeopteryx, this animal was furnished with wings when alive. Head, neck, chest, and ribs, tail, shoulder girdle, and arm or wing are all built on a reptilian type. The haunch is more reptilian than bird-like, but the hind limbs are those of a bird. The reptile characters unquestionably predominate in the skeleton, just as the bird characters come to the front in the feathers. Professor Vogt strenuously asserts that a study of Archaeopteryx shows that it is neither bird nor reptile, but that it is a decided link betwixt the two classes. It is a bird by its feathers and hind limbs, it is a reptile by the rest of its structure, and it is, moreover, a bird only in so far as we regard its type as having emerged from a reptilian stock. The birds to be presently described from the American chalk are later developments. As such, they are nearer the birds of today, but they retain the reptilian teeth whilst the rest of their organization has been evolved along the lines of bird structure. Professor Vogt further insists on the fact that the adaptation to flight is not necessarily combined with an erect position, since the extinct pterodactyls and the living bats illustrate cases in which that position was and is not maintained. The bird-like hind feet of the Archaeopteryx must be viewed as having been independent of flight, and as related to the possibility of sustaining the body on the hinder feet alone. In other words, we are not specially entitled to concern ourselves with the question of flight in this ancient animal, and the consideration is worth attention in dealing with the affinities of the Archaeopteryx. Finally, as Vogt points out, there is a complete affinity betwixt the scale of the reptile and the feather of the bird. The feather is, in fact, the further modification of the scale, and we may therefore, quote, imagine the ancestors of the Archaeopteryx as lizard-like terrestrial reptiles having feet with fine, hooked, free digits, showing no modification in their skeleton, but having the skin furnished at different points with elongated warts, downy plumes, and rudimentary feathers, not yet fitted for flight, but susceptible of further development in the course of generations, unquote. But that this odd relic of the oolite leads us decidedly in the direction of the reptiles by its tail and its hand, there can exist no reasonable doubt. Skepticism may exist on this latter point, but the doubt is neither of a learned nor of a scientific kind. We may not say that Archaeopteryx actually leads us from any one bird to any one group of reptiles. It rather stands intermediately and alone. 
but even in its solitary position it certainly makes the gulf betwixt the two classes seem less formidable next in order from the aviary of the geologist may be produced evidence of the existence of reptile-like birds in a most interesting series of fossils obtained from the chalk of western america by professor marsh about eighteen seventy one a headless bird skeleton was discovered in the upper chalk of western kansas this bird evidently resembled our living divers and was duly christened hesperonis regalis like our living ostriches emus and their allies this extinct bird possessed no keel on its breastbone it had the merest rudiments of wings and certain reptile-like resemblances seen in its haunch bones made geologists naturally anxious for the realization of their hopes in the discovery of a complete skeleton in 1872 fresh discoveries rewarded the patient and indefatigable search of professor marsh not only were the missing parts of the hesperonis duly obtained but the remains of another and still more remarkable species ichthyornis dispar of extinct birds were duly brought to light by the new discovery both hesperonis and ichthyornis were found to possess teeth the former having its curved teeth set in a common groove in the jaw bones whilst ichthyornis makes a further advance towards perfection in dental apparatus in that its twenty or so teeth of each jaw were lodged in distinct sockets the importance of these facts as bearing on true reptile-like characters in birds may be readily imagined no living bird possesses even the semblance of teeth if we accept the horny ridges of the merganser's bill prior to marsh's discoveries no fossil bird was known to have been provided with true teeth although indeed in certain bird remains described by owen from the london clay eocene of sheppey under the name odontopteryx the jaws were provided with bony projections these projections however are not true teeth which as many readers may know do not resemble bones either in development or structure being developed from the gum or lining membrane of the mouth and not from cartilage as true bones usually are doubtless these bony projections aided odontopteryx to catch its finny prey as the horny ridges of the mergansers enable them to retain the fishes they so dexterously capture one curious bird phytotoma a south american leaf cutter certainly possesses a double row of bony projections on its palate but even this novel and unusual addition to the list of bird possessions bears but a faint resemblance to the bony teeth of odontopteryx as these latter in turn are an entirely different and relatively modern feature of the bird type when compared with the true teeth of their american cousins of the western chalk the ichthyornis moreover diminishes the distance betwixt birds and reptiles in yet another fashion the joints of its spine were concave at either end a conformation familiar to us in the joints of the fish backbone utterly unknown in living birds but common enough in reptiles this character alone in the eyes of the naturalist becomes invested with an importance hardly to be overestimated as regards its reptilian relationships and in hesperornis also certain features in addition to those already noted show unmistakable marks of affinity to the reptile type the teeth of this latter bird set as already remarked in a common groove strongly remind one of the manner in which the teeth of certain lizards are fixed in their jaws some of the teeth of this curious bird also exhibit the manner in which one series of teeth was replaced by another for as most readers know 
reptiles and fishes possess an unlimited supply and a continual succession of teeth the old teeth are ousted from their sockets by new teeth which are developed at their bases and in the jaws of hesperornis such a manner of tooth formation exactly imitating a common reptilian mode of renewal is plainly to be seen the tail of this great diver of the chalk seas was lastly like that of the archaeopteryx of the oolite epoch and exhibited a very different structure from the caudal appendage of existing and of other fossil birds at its middle and under parts the joints of the tail present long projections of flattened shape which strongly suggest the idea of the tail having been a rigid unyielding member in so far as a side movement was concerned but like that of the beaver being probably mobile in a vertical direction and being thus of use in the diving movements of its possessor the last joints of the tail were massed together but in a fashion different from that in which the ploughshare bone of living birds is formed in so far as the birds themselves have rendered an account of their past history it is clearly seen that their affinities through reptiles become very strongly marked in various directions especially in the structure of the spine and in the possession of true teeth ichthyornis in the matter of its hollowed spine bones and in that of its socket implanted teeth is a more modified and more truly reptile-like bird than hesperornis this latter again approaches much nearer reptiles than odontopteryx of the london clay which latter as becomes its nearer approach to the existing order of affairs presents a less marked relationship with the dragons of the prime but what evidence we may lastly ask do the reptiles afford on their side of any tendency towards the bird type have the reptiles remained as passive to advance and evolution as they would appear at first sight to remain today, or does their history but repeat the changes and variations exhibited by their bird neighbors? Let the history of the reptile class in the past answer these queries. A considerable number of fossil reptiles are ranked to form a distinct order or division, marked by various near approaches to the structure of birds. A single example of this curious group will suffice to show the intermediate nature of its included forms. Once again, the lithographic slates of Solenhofen yield a rich reward to geological investigation and present us with the fossil skeleton of an animal which in the flesh attained a length of about two feet. This is the Compsognathus of the geologist, a long-necked reptile possessing a small head, the jaws of which, however, were armed with teeth its forelimbs were short its hind limbs being long and bird-like like that of birds its thigh bone is shorter than its leg bone as in birds the upper half of the ankle bone of compsognathus unites with the lower part of the leg but the lower half of the ankle was not as in birds united with the instep bones or metatarsals which are three or four in number long and slender and which in compsognathus support the second third and fourth toes a mere trace of the instep bone of the fifth toe exists, and the first or great toe is of small size. In all birds, the fifth toe is entirely wanting. Looking at the structure of Compsognathus and of its fossil allies, such as Iguanodon, little or no doubt can be entertained that these reptiles were capable of resting on their hind limbs in bird-like fashion, and of walking or hopping after the fashion of the feathered bipeds, to which, indeed, by a use of the imagination, strictly scientific, we may regard this reptilian group 
as having in due time given origin. It is unquestionably to the struthius birds, that is, to the ostriches and their allies, that this curious reptile bears the closest resemblance. And a comparative glance at the hinder extremities of the crocodile, bird, and its reptilian neighbor will suffice to show the marked resemblances and gradation which connect, and at the same time distinguish, this curious series of forms. The Compsognathus limb stands intermediate betwixt the saurian and the bird, and, strictly judged, is comparable most nearly to that of the unborn chick. These dragons of the prime, known as Iguanodon and Megalosaurus, from the chalk and oolite, are near relations of Compsognathus. When we think of the size of these reptiles, which attained a length of from forty to sixty feet, and of the probability that, like their diminutive neighbor, they may have walked on two legs, the origin of the giant footprints of the Triassic sandstones would appear to present no special difficulties in the way of satisfactory solution. Mention must here be made of the curious pterodactyls, or those extinct reptiles of the leus, oolite, and chalk, in which a wing member or fold of skin, similar to that seen in bats, stretched from an outer and enormously elongated finger of each hand to the forelimb, sides of the body, and hind limbs, and between the hind limbs and tail. By aid of this wing membrane, these literal flying dragons must have winged their way through the air with ease and speed. Their breastbone was keeled like that of the bird, their shoulder girdle was bird-like, and their bones, as in birds, were hollow, and were filled with air in place of marrow. The pterodactyl brain was essentially bird-like, but the hind limbs and pelvis were reptilian, and unlike those of the bird. And these flying dragons possessed prominent jaws, usually furnished with socket-implanted teeth. The pterodactyls are thus not markedly bird-like in any sense. They do not lie in the direct line, nor form one in the series of links between birds and reptiles, but apparently represent a bird-like but independent offshoot of the reptilian branch. In any view of their nature, however, they serve to show plainly and forcibly the modification of the reptilian type for flight. It requires but a limited draft upon speculative philosophy to support the belief that reptile modification in another direction, and certainly at an epoch anterior to the appearance of the pterodactyls, probably produced the modified birds of which our existing ornithology is the collective product. Space fails us in the endeavor to describe other examples of animals which from their anomalous structure seem to connect very diverse types of living forms. Mention might be made of the interesting fact that the apparently distinct groups of living and extinct crocodiles are linked together in a very exact fashion by their bodily structure, or conversely that it is easy to conceive of the varied crocodiles known to science as having originated by modification of a common type. The mere mention of such fishes as Lepidosiren and Ceratitus, linking their classes to that of the frogs or amphibians, or of such a mammal as the Ornithorhynchus, the duck-billed watermole of Australia, with its bird-like skeleton, and other structures of avian nature, suggests to the naturalist the idea that such anomalies are, after all, only to be accounted for by a theory of nature which postulates the necessity for links binding together groups which, at first sight, appear of widely varied and distinct nature. Summing up the results of this investigation in search of missing links, what may be regarded as the results of our labors? 
and to which side does the weight of evidence lead to evolution and modification as the parent of all that is in living nature or to rigidity and fixity of type and form as the rule and way of life at large judged by a very ordinary standard of value the evidence appears overwhelmingly strong in favor of the former view the demand for missing links as necessary features of the evolutionist scheme of creation is not left unanswered where just cause is shown for the production of these connections between the life of the past and that of the present there is neither wildness nor absurdity in the idea that the bird stock began in animals resembling compsognathus and its neighbors and that through modified bird forms probably resembling the living ostriches and their allies the further and higher development of our existing bird life was gradually evolved the exact stages of such development we are unable to picture the sketch is as yet in meagre outline but the outlines foreshadow tolerably well the actual details of the finished work and what is true of the relations between reptiles and birds or of those between the various races of crocodiles which it is important to note living and extinct are bound together in a series almost as graduated and complete as are the horses and their progenitors what is true of the connecting links betwixt quadrupeds that today appear distinct and separate must by every consideration alike of logic and common sense be held to apply with equal force to the entire world of animal and plant life there is no law of evolution for one group and of special creation for another there can be logically postulated no evolution for the lower races and some process of creation for the higher forms of animal life or for man himself uniformity and sequence exist wholly or not at all Quote, if one series of species says huxley has come into existence by the operation of natural causes it seems folly to deny that all may have arisen in the same way Unquote. the unbiased mind contemplating the varied phases of living nature will stand in no dread of any conclusions respecting the order of this universe to which evolution may lead for after all evolution in tracing out the ways of nature is but the handmaid of truth and it is with the truth as it is in nature that the earnest mind will most desire to close end of section twenty two chapter eight the evidence from missing links part three